You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we are talking again about private credit, a topic I never get tired of, especially when rates are this juicy. Nelson, private credit is an amazing value. I really think among every asset class, it has unequivocally represents more value at this exact point in time. We're in August of 2023. This might be airing in September. But we want to talk about private credit today, Nelson. Um, and before we even dive in, I want you, I want to introduce you. You're the founder and CEO at Percent. And I know we've had you on the program previously, episode 97. But for any of our viewers and listeners who aren't familiar with Percent, would you mind giving us a, a brief introduction to your platform? Absolutely. And good to see you, Andy. Always good to be back and excited to share more about our perspectives on private credit in this rate environment today. Uh, so I'm the founder and CEO of Percent, and Percent is what we like to call the modern credit exchange, essentially. And so what we created is a suite of software services and solutions for the companies and borrowers who need debt capital. Uh, the investors and lenders who want to invest in it and earn a return, especially in this environment today, and the underwriters who sit in the middle designed to structure and arrange these types of transactions. So in this multi-trillion dollar market that is growing very, very quickly, all transactions today have been done generally using Excel phone calls and emails. That is our competitor, essentially, at this point. And so our job is to make everything from sourcing to structuring to syndication to surveillance to servicing all that much easier and that much simpler. And so that's what we built today. We've done about a billion two in transaction volume so far, and we're only just getting started. Yeah, and I have to, as, as a user, I have to plug percent, not being paid to say this, but just, you know, like I'm like an Apple guy, right? Like I love my Apple products. I love good user experiences. I kind of hate, you know, what Nelson's referring to, the world of spreadsheets and Excel and all that stuff. Uh, I hate all that stuff, right? And, and in an alternative, so much of the alternative investment landscape is really stuck in the stone age. Let's be honest, guys. And so percent to me, the platform is so refreshing because the website is so darn good. It's so professional, easy to use. And I do think both in private credit, but really across the alternative landscape, I, I hope people can like take notes and be like, okay, we don't need to have user experiences from the stone age. Like users actually appreciate, you know, making onboarding easy and having good filtering tools and, and that sort of thing. So Nels, anyway, kudos again to your tech team. Um, who didn't pay me to say this, but they are doing a great job on your platform. And that being said, I recently saw Percent was in the news, like the mainstream media, that you all closed a huge Series B round. Could you share any details from that recent announcement? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, everything you mentioned from the experience, the products that we offer to the way we do things, is really what definitely helped get our series be closed at the very least. Uh, it is, I think, near and dear to our heart. And I think all of us coming from um, more of a consumer facing background, or at least like using you know, iPhone apps on a regular basis, the question was, why does capital markets need to be so backwards? Right? Why does it need to be, to your point, stuck in the stone age? Um, you know, all my love goes to Bloomberg, but man, that stuff looks like it's from, you know, back in the day. And so uh, our job and our hope was to make it that much easier where someone doesn't need to be trained how to use it. It's just so intuitive. 
And so whether you're a sell side shop, like a bank or a buy side shop, like a credit fund, you kind of can pick it up and go. And that was always the intent. Uh, so appreciate the shout out for our series B. That was a uh, interesting exercise in futility. I think it's probably the best way to look at it, especially in this market today. Uh, we started this process uh, for the fundraise in, I would say, probably Q2 of last year, give or take, 2022. Uh, and it was a very dicey time for any startup looking to raise money, ultimately, right? And because the rates at that point in time were still relatively low, and the economy was kind of, I would argue, like holding on in some respects, there wasn't still a lot of interest and demand for private credit from the VC side, at least. They hadn't really understood uh, what it would mean for the broader economy, uh, for what private credit could do for them and their portfolio companies. Now, fast forward to Q1 of 2023 this year, you had the banking crisis, right? SVB went under, uh, you had Signature Bank go under as well, uh, and you had a situation over several weekends where there was a lot of questions about how companies are going to make payroll, how they're going to be able to survive, things like that. <laughs> Nelson, and, I'm sorry yeah. to interject. It's just funny you mentioned uh, Silicon Valley and VCs. I'm like, I think a lot of VCs are are learning the hard way what private credit is all about now in, in 2023, right? Like it's it's kind of like the tables have turned a little bit. They are indeed, know? yeah. And, you know, I think in 2018, I said at some point in the future, private credit will have its moment. And I kept saying that 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021. <laughs> and finally, in 2023, private credit yeah. most certainly had its moment, at least for VCs, right? Because during SVB weekends, when literally nobody was going to be able to provide capital, no bank at the very least, uh, in the interim, in the short term, we actually had hundreds of startups reach out to us saying, hey, I need like bridge financing for payroll on Monday morning. Like, this is going to happen. I have no idea what I'm going to do. And because we had a slew of underwriters who knew how to use our tech, we had investors that wanted to support the ecosystem. We had pretty much $50 million in capital ready to go by Monday morning, if we needed to, to be able to support uh, various different startups that have reached out to us. So that was almost like a litmus test for us to say, hey, like, can we do this if all three sides of the market are very motivated to work together? And the answer was most certainly yes, clearly. Well, no, Nelson, and was that reported anywhere? Because I was following that SVP story. I, I mean, I feel like that's a, that's almost a newsworthy story in its own right. Yeah, yeah. We've shared it with several reporters. Uh, some of them have picked it up, some haven't said it's fine. Um, but I think over that weekend, there was a bunch of lists going around of like, you know, Brex did a really good job. I think Mercury did a really good job. All those different groups did a good job. Uh, Capchase did as well. And I think we were on that list as well for people and companies that could provide bridge financing in that instance. Um, and so we all worked the weekend. I was actually on a flight to Singapore at the time. And uh, I will say, there is a certain dead zone on United. Just keep that in mind between California and Singapore, uh, where you do not get Wi-Fi. And I was like, oh, geez, uh, we got to figure this out. Um, but our team worked very hard to be able to you know, support that over the weekend um, and be ready by Monday morning on the off chance the Treasury Department didn't step in to bail out arguably the, the global economy in that instance. Uh, so in that scenario, when VCs all, I think, appreciated what private credit could do and what companies like us could do, we got tremendous interest in the round at that point. And so before then, we were, you know, we had a done a first close. We're trying to figure out who would be the right fit for the rest of the round, things like that. We were only shooting for effectively, you know, 20 million and change, give or take. Uh, and then once that happened, we started to really see the momentum pick up in terms of borrowers looking for debt capital, in terms of underwriters trying to capitalize on it and investors looking to get higher yields when the rates keep going up and up and up. We were in a very interesting situation where VCs were coming to us saying, hey, we're now learning what you're doing, super interesting. And we were getting inbounds uh, at that point. And so fast forward you know, uh, to May of this year, when we officially closed the round. 
it was a oversubscribed round in, and it was an up round, which I think in this market is pretty difficult to get. So I will most certainly take it, uh, but it's a testament to, I think, our team, what we've built, and also right place, right time, uh, just in terms of private credit having its moment in the spotlight. All of that came together. Uh, and as with most startups, you need, need a little bit of luck. Uh, I think we got a lot of luck in this instance uh, to time at the right time uh, to close this round. Nelson, I got to say, I really appreciate the humility, but also truth of what you're saying. Like it is a little bit of luck. You have a, a great platform, great tech. It's a great asset class. And the fact that you were doing a series B last year, I mean, you know, almost the worst time, not the worst timing, but, but certainly bad timing for any kind of venture capital series B type round. It was an up round. It ended up being oversubscribed. And even the fact that the, you know, the global economy had a near miss, as you know, as you point out, the fact that that worked in your favor is, is, is kind of mind boggling. And, you know, one thing that is, is really amazing about private credit is to your point about the platform and its growth, like the percent platform, there's more, you know, more uh, borrowers need private credit, right? But there's also more investors who are interested in it. Normally, when a ton of people cotton onto a new asset class or a new opportunity, you'll see returns go down, right? It's like sure. it's like a, a gold rush type phenomenon, you know. Like we we saw that maybe in multifamily in like 2018, 2019. Yeah, like everybody exactly. and their brother was a multifamily syndicator. But with private credit, it's becoming more and more popular, but rates appear to be getting juicier and juicier. And I, I mean, I want to get your predictions later in this episode, but the, the attractiveness, the value of this asset class does not appear to be transitory. It appears to be here to stay. And, and, and actually, you know, we're seeing disinflation now, right, throughout the past nine to 12 months. But the yields in private credit, they don't really seem to be moved. I mean, if anything, maybe they're going up. I mean, what's going on, Nelson? Yeah, how, how, absolutely. how could it defy? How could this defy gravity? Asset class defy gravity. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of factors at play there. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. Uh, so traditionally in private credit, it's been a pretty opaque asset class. It kind of just operates in its own little silo. And so when borrowers need debt capital, they would go to like a credit fund or something like that. And it's kind of a who you know type situation. And so you'll shop it around, get the best thing you can get, and then call it a day. You have literally no idea how anybody else is pricing anything, basically, uh, outside of what may or may not get published, right? And so for us, that's really not how we think efficient markets should be done. And in that instance, then, uh, we created a almost like a public market-style syndication process where, let's say, a company is looking to raise $5 million, and the assets itself can arguably support, let's say, oh, like 18% or 17% or something like that, right, in this environment. Um, but theoretically, the, um, the borrower would be open to let's say 20% in the event that they can raise more money. And so when the order book builds, when investors indicate their interest and you're seeing you know, obviously higher rates, they can ultimately see how it builds and see and decide, do I want more money that's more expensive, that's gonna cost me more, but I did get more money, or less money that's gonna cost me less. And it becomes more of a um, real-time uh, dynamic market pricing that actually factors in market demand, which has never really existed before in private credit. So to your point, around um, you know, rates are definitely going higher. That's for sure the case. 
But for deals and borrowers that are extremely well-performing, they are still coming at the lower end of the rate spectrum because there's enough demand for it. And our technology allows people to price it properly and help them get the benefit of good performance effectively. Um, but still- so you're, you're right? talking oh. about, you, So you're talking about not just a different macro environment. And I mean, you are the CEO at Percent, so I'll let mm -hmm. you talk your book and talk your own platform. But you're actually talking about uh, like a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A fundamental- a secular change within that asset class of actually how it operates. So it's not just that this exactly. greater environment is favoring private credit. It's that private credit, especially to borrowers, is now a fundamentally different value proposition than it was five years ago. Is that the case? We're getting a little bit of innovation in the space, and we're trying to lead the charge on that front. So this is something that the industry and the asset class has never seen before, this type of dynamic order book pricing. Uh, and that's allowing borrowers and put the power back in the hands of borrowers a little bit, right? Because before it used to be, oh, you can, you know, just get the rate that you rate, get, that you get, and that's it. Uh, no negotiation, not much room for wiggle room. It's just call it like it is. And now borrowers can see how the demand is coming through, through a platform like ours. And they can decide, again, more money, higher cost, less money, lower cost, all within the bands that the asset class itself is performing in based on general macro conditions, which we talked about a little bit. Um, but that is a fundamental, I think, shift in how people approach pricing private credit products that just never really existed before we came around, which is, which is wonderful to see because it does ultimately lead to a more transparent, more efficient market that looks more like public debt markets than private debt markets. But to your point around macro conditions, for sure, right? There is a lot of macro, um, I would say, it depends on who you want to call it, headwinds or tailwinds, uh, depending on who's on the other side of the spectrum. Uh, but there's headwinds for borrowers, tailwinds for investors, because at the end of the day, there is an inherent risk uh, that's priced into private credit, right? So if the Fed funds rate keeps going up, then in general, people want anywhere from 8 to 10% extra on top of the Fed funds rate. That is sort of where it's, it's pricing regularly, even pre um, the Fed raising rates, right? So uh, when rates were at near zero for the longest time, uh, the private credit markets for, for example, like small business lending was 10 to 11%, something like that. So a nice little 10% premium above. That's what people wanted to get to be worth their time. Now it's closer to like 16, 17, 18%. And that's now the norm that people expect, especially for retail type investors. You do have still a lot of institutional investors that are looking for higher quality credit that are going to be down in these you know, low teens, high single digits. That's still around. But that is a very different credit profile than the 17, 18, 19% type of borrower. Could you talk a little bit about that, actually? Because I think, you know, like when we talk about, for instance, junk bonds, right? You kind of have in your mind like a particular risk profile. And again, I know there's different types of junk bonds, but like you kind of you kind of know if you're experienced with that sector, what you're looking at in terms of the, the variation. But it sounds to me like that uh window or that spread or that uh, distribution within private credit is a little wider or maybe maybe you could even bucket into, into those two types you know because i agree with you in the sense that i still interact with private credit folks professionals even fund managers and they're looking for 10 percent. they're looking for maybe 11 percent, with the goal to be to cut the risk as low as possible but like we don't need returns over 10% like that, you know, that that's almost like silly, like, you know, uh, unthinkable, but you're talking about 16, 17, 18% high teens, like that necessarily is going to be a, a very different uh, value proposition, risk return profile to the investor. So how do you, how do you bucket that? Or how do you like, like, even, it, you know, 
I don't know if you have any nomenclature on your website or just like, how do you personally view that distribution? Do you bucket it in any way? Yeah, that's a great question. I will say actually, with the uh, rise of companies staying private for longer, right? I think, you know, ultra high yield public debt, uh, which is considered like junk bonds, if you will, right? Um, those have actually performed either worse or the same as private credit. And so the reality is, you know, private credit has oftentimes outpaced the triple C or the C grade type investments uh, products on the public debt side. Uh, which is very telling, right? Because there, that means that there is good quality assets and good quality companies in the private space that just chose not to go public effectively, uh, which is which is great. So investors have the opportunity to get into that. Now, in this instance, uh, to your point around sort of bucketing, uh, there is two segments of private credit, right? There is actual sub-asset classes. Uh, there's the asset-backed side and there's the corporate debt side. So asset-backed is, you can almost think of it as like a portfolio of loans or a portfolio of assets that is spitting out cash flows. Could be interest payments or something like that. So anything from like small business lending to consumer loans, to factor receivables, litigation finance, equipment leasing, those types of asset classes fit under the asset-backed umbrella. And that's a very different profile than a single loan to a single borrower that fits under like corporate debt, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So the asset backside has a lot of structure to it. You have different covenants, you have different um, like levers that you can pull to be able to ensure that almost like in the worst case scenario, you still have assets that can support the performance. And so that, those rates tend to almost always be lower than the corporate debt side. And so you're going to see different types of performance characteristics on that front. On the corporate debt side, there is some stratification as well, right? Because you have uh, the EBITDA profitable companies or EBITDA positive companies that would command arguably a lower rate uh, than somebody who's like venture debt, essentially, where venture-backed companies who are most definitely not profitable are taking on venture debt to kind of get them to their next phase of growth or their next milestone. Those rates are going to be high because these are not profitable companies. You're betting on the company being able to survive and hit those targets. So different approaches, different profiles. Uh, but we do have bucketing underneath here. And the optionality here is given to the investor to decide what they want. So they want just ABS products and asset-backed products. So they want just corporate debt products for higher yield. So they want a mix. Um, there's a lot of different ways to play private credit. And our job is just to give as much diversification and optionality as possible. Yeah, no, I hear you. And that's that's very helpful. I guess I was thinking, you know, even within that corporate private credit bucket of, as you said, companies that are EBITDA positive, you know, I, I've interacted with private credit managers that are dealing with, you know, mid-sized companies and, you know, manufacturing or, you know, like, like businesses, I would say are solid businesses with multi-decade track records. It's still private credit, right? Yep. Uh, but it, and and it probably is asset backed at some level in terms of, you know, you, you, the, 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 the business has physical assets. It's not like, software code or intangible assets or something that a VC backed company would have. So like even within that corporate world, you know, there, it seems to me there's different profiles of the companies that are, you know, borrowing at the 10% rate versus 17% rate. Yeah, absolutely. And that just comes down to how you structure the opportunity. Right. And so it's, the beauty of private credit, I think, is that the levers are all there to be able to protect yourself because you could have, for example, a um, EBITDA positive company uh, that didn't pledge as many assets or didn't have a personal guarantee or didn't have anything associated with it. 
And that'll have a higher rate than a less EBITDA positive company, but it was able to kind of put those assets to work or put a personal guarantee behind it or have more restrictive covenants or give up more equity along the way. So there is just dozens and dozens of levers in the private credit space and in credit in general. Uh, so it's not quite so easy to say super EBITDA positive company should have a very low rate because they may choose to not put as much of their balance sheet or whatever it may be as, as a guarantee or to, to work, in which case mm -hmm. they'll get paid a higher rate, but it's less risk for them from their perspective because they're so flush with cash that they can pay whatever rate they want to pay. So it would it's actually difficult to specifically say one way or the other uh, why high rate means high risk. It just means high rate means different structure, essentially. Understood. And I think the interesting thing about your platform, so I mean, a, a big theme I have is like art versus science, you know, and you see this in almost every discipline, financial discipline, or really any discipline, musical instruments, whatever, part of it's art, part of it's science, part of it is very technical. And part of it, when someone is very experienced and they're, they're a true master professional, what they do, it's like in their gut. And a lot of times they're making decisions based on dozens or hundreds of variables and they know the right answer and they make the decision, but they don't even know why they knew the answer, right? It's just that long track record and all that sort of internal knowledge they have. And so sometimes we kind of call that art, right? And so a private credit, like a traditional private credit fund manager, they might be looking at all of those variables that you just mentioned, you know, whether there's a personal guarantee, all those sorts of things. And they structure the deal and it's a yes or no, T take it or not. And if, by the way, if you don't take the deal, we have a hundred other borrowers behind you who, who want access to our capital. So we don't really care, take it or leave it. Whereas on your platform, it's almost like um, you're, you're systematizing it, making it transparent. And rather than keeping all of that knowledge internal and, and making the decision as a fund manager, you're structuring the deal, but you're letting everyone else kind of x-ray it and say, this is the deal and this is why the terms are what they are. Now you decide, do you want to put your own dollars at risk and lend to this borrower? That's exactly right. So private debt markets being historically super opaque, super not transparent, super not efficient, uh, it's come from the fact that there really isn't any market standardization. Every single deal is structured differently with their own kitchen sink of levers that they pulled to be able to put that deal together. And to your point, you know, a little bit of art, a little bit of science. Uh, and then there's no data standardization either, right? So every single borrower is probably not a public company. They probably don't have audited financials. And it's very difficult to actually get standardized performance data coming out of this. And versus when you look at public debt markets, they have all of that, right? They can actually do a $1 billion bond issuance and close it in 24 hours. That is absolutely insane. But it works because everything's super standardized, super structured, and you know what you're getting into. So our goal was always to bring that type of public style, public market style efficiency to private debt markets, bringing that market standardization. To your point about X-raying, you actually have the ability to compare every single deal, the multi-hundreds of deals that we've done with one another and all the different criteria, different credit enhancements, different underwriting requirements we put on it. You can look at it side by side with any of the other hundreds of deals that we had, right? And so that's a level of standardization that has never existed before. And it arms the investor with as much information as possible to make the right decision for themselves. And then on the data standardization side and the asset performance side, you know, normally borrowers would just send whatever loan tape they had or whatever performance data they had or QuickBooks export. And then the investors left holding the bags to say, well, now I got to make sense of this one. And I got to make sense of the other one that's, set, that's completely different. And it's just so painful. 
And so the ability for us to standardize reporting on a weekly, monthly basis, so you can compare apples to apples, borrowers within the same asset class, that's groundbreaking. And so all that is in service of hopefully making a more transparent, more efficient, and more functional market that looks more like public debt markets. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the fact that you all are doing this, I think, raises the stakes for everybody, right? Because it just, as soon as someone sets the bar in any given asset class, then that creates that expectation. You know, you you alluded to the fact, Nelson, that private credit has had this moment, or I, I would say is having this moment. And as I've said, I've spoken with family offices, ultra high net worth investors who weren't involved in private, like they knew what private credit was, but they weren't invested in it. Now in 2023, they're allocating to it. It might be a tactical allocation, right? So are they still allocated to it seven years from now? I don't know, but like, I don't need to think that far ahead. Either way, they're allocating to it now where they didn't five, 10 years ago. But I personally, I still think as if this is the high watermark for private credit, I don't think it's high enough of a high watermark. Like I, I think they're there's still a lack of awareness of the value that this provides compared to public debt markets. Uh, number one, do you agree? Number two, if, it, if that's the case, how do we fix it? I definitely agree. Obviously, very biased given the company that I run, but still, right? I think you can still see the writing on the wall here in terms of you know the cat being out of the bag. And there is a lot of more room to run at this point for private credit. Uh, Prequent itself has said that this is going to, there's trillions more to go in terms of market growth for private credit, wow. which is fantastic. Uh, so we think we're well positioned to capitalize on that. Um, but the reason for that is because things that weren't originally considered private credit before are now being considered as, as private credit, or at least people are using private credit to fund, right? And so that could, I think even the, uh, the syndicated loan market, leveraged loan market, there is various different ways that they're using private credit to fund it that wasn't possible before. Um, so you're seeing dynamics change on that side. You're seeing Goldman and JP Morgan set up syndication desks for private credit specifically. If you have more secondaries, that's just naturally gonna create a more efficient market and a bigger market as a result right. of that. So all these things are there, the foundational pieces are there, and obviously we're playing a small part in all of that as well, uh, but that's designed to help get this can grow bigger and bigger. And even when you look at startups, right? Startups who historically never viewed venture debt as a viable option, very few companies knew what it was or what to do with it. Nowadays, when they realize that VC equity is hard to come by, convertible debt, hard to come by, well, the third one on the list is venture debt. So it's either die or take venture debt. I'm gonna take venture debt and we'll see how it goes. And now venture debt is having its moment as well, right? And so there is so much demand for venture debt right now from startups that I think going forward, when the market turns and gets back more hopefully to, to normal, ultimately, um, venture debt can be viewed as a viable alternative supplement benefit add-on to anything you do on the equity side that's non-dilutive and helps them grow faster, get bigger, get to their next milestone. And these things are all systemic and it's all happening very quickly in this high rate environment. That to me proves that private credit is here to stay and it's going to continue to grow from here. Well, okay. So I, I guess your your thesis then is we are having a moment. We are at a high watermark. The high watermark is going to get a lot higher. And you actually think that groundwork has already been laid. Like there's no, there's no problem. Like I, I'm kind of positing there's a problem. Like the more investors just on the retail side or even on the family office side, like you know, need to see the value <laughs> like just from the investment thesis point of, hey, look, 
bonds are paying so much more than they paid for decades. The spread here is just as thick as it always was, if not thicker. Maybe, like you tell me, maybe it's even thicker than it ever has been. And oh yeah, we have inflation falling. We have disinflation. It's the closest thing to, you know, it's not really a free lunch because there's risk. But in terms of risk reward, it just seems like it's, guys, it's never going to get better than this, than it is right now. I think the ability to get more deal flow than ever before is what's going to be here to stay. So uh, diversification, optionality, that is going to be what's here to stay, especially since, you know, you look at KKR, Blackstone, they have their private credit funds. They are so large. They're going after the largest of large because that's what they have to do to justify you know, the fees that they get and the returns that they get for investors. Uh, there is a new, almost like lower middle market, middle market segment of private credit that's having its moment right now as well, right? The problem with lower middle market private credit is that it's actually very difficult to do diligence because these are all emerging managers, things like that. And so we've gotten a lot of feedback from RAs and family offices who want that extra juice uh, in this market in private credit, and they know they need to go down market, go lower middle market, and they just don't know what to do ultimately because it's like, do I need to evaluate every fund manager that's managing $30 million? Like that's insane, right? Like I, I need to put millions to work here. I could take down the entire fund all at once. That doesn't work. And so uh, it's things like some of the things that we're doing are uh, to be able to create almost like a basket of products that sort of fit the lower middle market criteria that they set. And that becomes really interesting. So you can say, I want US deals only. I want senior positions only. I want default rates of the portfolio of loans less than X percent and just come up with that. And then basically we can have algorithmic allocation into lower middle market private credit that gets you diversification at the manager level, the borrower level, and at the deal level. That's super interesting. And so we're seeing a more uh, sophistication from RIAs and family offices and, and high net worth accredited investors who are looking for, now they understand the market and the asset class a little bit better, what they come to expect in public equity markets, like an ETF, for example, right? They want that type of product versus trying to pick and choose and cherry pick themselves because that's just a fruitless exercise and it takes forever, basically. Um, this type of innovative asset management type product, SMA-like product is a far better fit for that. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned some bigger names moving, expanding into private credit. Maybe they were already there, but they're beefing up uh, their presence there. So I, you know, doing some research for today's show, you know, I was just poking around the private credit news, you know, and I, I remember that BlackRock, um, they've expanded more into private credit in the past year, which I I view as definitely a bullish development, right? BlackRock, you know, one of the biggest, if not the biggest names in finance. Um, and this was June 8th on PitchBook. I'm just bringing this up in my notes. Uh, they announced that they will acquire Krios, Krios um, which is a provider of growth and venture debt in technology and healthcare. And the article mentioned that this European private debt platform uh, of BlackRock had committed around $5.6 in over 750 transactions already. So they've, they've done a lot, but they are definitely expanding their beefing it up in Europe and globally. Do you, I, I, I guess, you know, you're, you're a venture funded startup. I think you're, you know, you're a big, pretty successful startup, but you're still a startup. Does this kind of, uh, you know, these really big players expanding and beefing up private credit, does that scare you or is it just bullish? Is it just kind of vindicating the asset class and exciting you? So it's interesting. Uh, when we started, we effectively were the underwriter of the deals, right? Because as a venture-backed company, anyone who's 
in the VC space would know, three-sided markets are almost like doomed to fail. It's almost impossible to get off the ground from day one. And we have borrowers, we have underwriters, we have investors. And so to, to kind of jumpstart the engine a little bit, we were the underwriter for the first four years of the company's life. And so if that's all we ever did, right? We were essentially competing with, you know, the small sell side shops of the world for these private credit deals. I'd be very scared. That's a very difficult spot to play in, especially when these big names start coming in. Mm -hmm. But the fact is in that four-year timeframe, we built out a ton of software and the vision was always for us to take a step back away from underwriting to be able to actually let the three sides of the market work together using technology to transact better than ever before. And so starting this year, this is after we last spoke, uh, January 2023, uh, we basically put the drew the line in the sand to say we are no longer underwriting any new deals. Every single thing has to come from another underwriter uh, and they have to bring their borrower, whatever it may be, and they have to adhere to our standards. And that's worked out very well for us. We've seen revenue grow dramatically. We've seen AUM grow. We've seen all of these things grow as a result of them being able to scale using tech and getting the benefits, the same benefits that we had these last few years as the underwriter. So I'd like to think that we are the most agnostic and uh, friendly shop on the street because somebody like a BlackRock or a Blackstone or a KKR, doesn't matter. They should ultimately be clients. They should benefit from the tech that we've built to make them that much better and operate the market they're operating in with more efficiency and more profitability than ever before. And so I like it. And, you know, uh, can't name names, but we are talking to some of these people that you've listed here today on a regular basis for multiple different reasons. And I think it's proving out the point that there's a lot of innovation to be had in this space. And I think we're going to be leading the charge on that front. Well, I love it. And, you know, it's what I've learned about the alternative investment landscape in hosting the show for what, 150 plus episodes is you know, the old school uh, broker dealer network, well, that's like, it's not going away. It's, it's still, it's huge, it's, but it, it doesn't need to for direct to consumer to also flourish, right? There are plenty of financial advisors globally in the United States who want to invest all their clients' money in one or two or three very trusted names. And that represents a ton of assets but there's an increasing number of self-directed investors, independent family offices, independent RIAs, hybrid RIAs that want to use these kind of platforms too. And it's all big enough and it's all growing quickly enough that it's, it doesn't even need to be uh, like a, like a winner and loser. Like, you know, some of these there's enough pie to go around for everybody. There really is. I, yeah. It, it sounds like a slogan, uh, but it's, it's the truth, at least in alternatives. Uh, Nelson, I know we're we're running short on time, but I, I can't let you leave without picking your brain a little bit about the year ahead. So just just to kind of you know summarize, private credit has had this incredible 12, 18 months of of growth. Your platform has had an incredible 12, 18 months of growth. Uh, well, I know you've really been growing since inception, but I just mean this is this has been kind of a banner year, a banner 12 month period. Uh, and in my point of view, my theory that we are really at a sweet spot right now with disinflation, but high rates, and then this nice thick spread for private credit. Where do we go from here, though? Is is there nowhere to go but down for private credit? You know, do you see rates continuing to climb? Do you see the spread continuing to be as thick as it is? Is it just going to be this golden era for the next couple of years? Are there any are there any headwinds or landmines that investors should be keeping an eye out for? 
Sure. These are all great questions. So uh, obviously, of course, obligatory disclaimer, this is not investment advice, but I am going to give a, a, uh, a guess on what's going to happen in the future. Um, so it's been interesting, right? The equity markets, we're recording this at the beginning of August 2023. The equity markets are effectively kind of where they were in February 2022, which is absolutely terrifying. It's like nothing happened, right? And we know a lot has happened since then. Uh, the The payroll, like the unemployment reports are staggering in a I would say good that people are employed, which is very, it's always a good sign, but that's not what the Fed wants to see at the very least, right? They want to actually tank the economy so they can bring it back. Uh, and that all bodes for what they thought was going to be, you know, a few more rate hikes between now and the end of the year. I think we're going up from here. Like they're not done yet. Uh, they've been very clear about that, that they want to see numbers a certain way and they're not seeing it right now. Um, so that will continue to keep rates elevated, I think, for the foreseeable future. My guess, at least until Q2 of next year, 2024, realistically, um, because this, this economy is running too hot. Um, but with that in mind, there is some downstream implications for private credit, right? Because the uh, higher rate environment gets passed, the cost of capital gets passed onto the borrowers. And let's say you are a small business lender. If your cost of running your loan portfolio has gone up by multitudes of percentage points, then you need to pass that on to the underlying borrower itself, the small business or the consumer or something like that. And there is a threshold where that will not work anymore because the underlying borrower, that small business can't afford it either. And they're going to start defaulting on their payments. And there's a, you know, a, uh, there's a chain of events that happens here where if they start to default, performance starts to deteriorate the actual borrower, the small business lending company is going to have challenges as well. And then it's going to fall back onto the investor and they're going to feel the impact of it as well. So there is a tipping point for that. That's actually, that's not great. Right. And so, that so will happen private, private credit could almost be so juicy that, uh, you know, or rates are so high that we choke everybody. And it's like, well, if, if, if these businesses that are paying us rates in the mid teens are the golden goose, we don't want to strangle the golden goose. Right. Right. And for but certain the Fed, the Fed market, does want to, the Fed does want to, the Fed wants to, yes. <laughs> but in certain segments of the market, specifically for the larger transactions, right? Because the larger transactions tend to have longer durations. So you could have been in a situation where they lock in the rate right now and it's a five, six year maturity or something like that. And they're stuck with it. And so they see the performance deteriorate along the way over these next couple of years. They can't do anything about it because the duration is so long. Now, when you go more and more down market, like the lower middle market segment that all these RIAs and family offices are looking at right now, the durations are naturally shorter. They're going to be you know, one year. Some of them are six months. Some of them are uh, 18 months, something like that, uh, with structures built in so that you can actually adjust the structure in the event something doesn't seem to go according to plan. And so in that segment of the market, when you're not locked in for so long, you can oftentimes protect yourself as an investor because the structure supports readjusting the levers to balance out deterioration of performance. And we've seen that happen multiple times already. We've seen it during COVID. We saw it now. We're seeing it now. And so that's why the lower middle market segment, I think, will be a little bit more resilient than the large caps, which are now locked into this for a very long time and almost have to see this like slow coming freight train of performance deterioration and have to figure out what to do with it uh, without blowing up the entire structure. And so it's going to be very interesting. It's gonna be like, I think, a tale of two different types of um, results and situations here uh, between lower middle market and the large cap side of the equation. Well, gosh, it's nice that the lower middle market, you know, finally has some uh, tailwinds or you know, has, has a little bit of an advantage in, in some ways. Uh, it's a little bit refreshing and, and, uh, I, I, I take your, I don't want to say predictions, but your thoughts 
to heart, Nelson. I, I think you know the, the Fed is uh, they mean business, right? They don't want to have unfinished business, and so I don't want to be in the business of knowing really how it all shakes out. But I think I think your thoughts are very prudent that. You know, we don't want to get too complacent just because the S&P has had a nice little little run here. Uh, I think we're about out of time, Nelson. I really appreciate you sharing all your insights today. Where can our audience of high net worth investors and family offices go to learn more about the Percent platform? Absolutely. We're super easy to find. It's just percent.com. You can see uh, sign up for an account very easily. It's free and poke around and see what investments we have to offer. Uh, for high net worth and family offices who want to put a little bit more money to work and uh, into the private credit markets, we actually can create bespoke products for you as a result of that. So feel free to reach out to our team at hello at percent.com, chat in, uh, fill out the contact form, doesn't matter. And we'd be happy to speak with you about how we can create a customized product that fits exactly your investment mandate, basically, for private credit. Awesome. Nelson, thanks again for joining the show today. Thanks for having me again. Always good to see you. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.